It's Wednesday, July 10th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The criminal groping case against actor Kevin Spacey shifted dramatically on Monday when the man accusing Spacey of groping him exercised his Fifth Amendment rights, a move that could lead to the dismissal of the case. There was also an admission from the accuser's mother that she deleted some material from her son's cell phone, which has now gone missing. Joey Garrison, national correspondent for USA Today, was in court for the turn of events and joins us with details. Next, it will all be going down on July 17th. Special counsel Robert Mueller is testifying before two House committees about his report on Russian interference in the election and possible obstruction of justice. But while the report has received a lot of attention, many lawmakers and the public at large have yet to read the whole thing. Darren Samuelson, senior reporter at Politico, joins us for how lawmakers reacted when he asked them if they had read the report or not. Finally, Warner Media has announced its new streamer will be called HBO Max and will be taking one of the top shows on Netflix. HBO Max will be launching next spring, and it'll be taking the show Friends with it at a cost of $425 million for five years. Joe Flint, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for what else to expect from this new streaming option. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. She started tearing up, crying at the very beginning, saying, I have nothing but the truth to tell. But, you know, 15 minutes later, when Spacey's attorney gets her on record admitting to various deletions, I mean, I just think that's a problematic for the state of Massachusetts. Joining us now is Joey Garrison, national correspondent for USA Today. The criminal groping case against Kevin Spacey was in court on Monday. There was a pretrial hearing about this missing cell phone that's believed to be critical to both sides. And there was fireworks all around. There was an exchange between Spacey's attorney and the accuser's father in this case. There was an admission from his mother also that she had deleted some material from her son's cell phone. And this cell phone is so critical to this case right now. Another crazy thing that happened is the accuser, his name is William Little. He's 21 years old now. He pled the fifth. He didn't want to testify anymore. This has kind of thrown everything for a loop now. A lot of people are saying that this whole case might be going down now and might end in a dismissal of charges. Tell us what's going on with this, Joey. The accuser, William Little, invoking his Fifth Amendment rights, that was the real jaw-dropper that I think might have really blown this case wide open here. Rewinding a little bit, the case was held again for the accuser, Little, to produce a cell phone that has not been able to be located. This was a phone, his personal iPhone, that he used to text both his then-girlfriend as well as a group of friends while the alleged assault from Spacey was unfolding. But Spacey's defense has noted that there appears to be missing text messages and photos from the phone, discrepancies from what Mr. Little turned into investigators in 2017 uh, when they were investigating the case versus what they later found in back storage, et cetera, was part of the phone. And so going now to the court hearing, they went one by one through the family as witnesses, starting with the accuser, then the mother, then the father. And, and they probably, Alan Jackson, Kevin Spacey's attorney, had probably been asking 20 to 30 minutes worth of questions to Little when all of a sudden he got Little to acknowledge that there were discrepancies on screenshots that had been turned into investigators versus maybe other contents from his phone that wasn't turned in. He asked him, are you aware that deleting evidence is a crime? And Little said, I am now. And immediately at that point, the judge called for a recess, lasted about an hour. And then the first thing announced when the court was brought back into session was the judge saying that the accuser has invoked his Fifth Amendment rights. What that, you know, this was a 
bizarre course of events because Little had just been addressing on the witness stand for about a half an hour. He was asked a series of tough questions from Spacey's defense, but now retroactively he's saying, I take the plead the fifth. I talked to other attorneys who were watching it as well, and they were shocked that Mitchell Garavitti and the attorney for Little did not stop right there, the line of questions, to stop his client from getting, possibly admitting to some sort of state crime here. And so whatever they were talking about outside of the courtroom for that next hour, they decided to plead the fifth. Now, so what that does is it takes away the central testimony, which is critical, obviously, for the state to pursue charges against Kevin Spacey. And so immediately at that moment, Jackson, the attorney for Spacey, said, you know, this case should be dismissed today. The judge ultimately decided against that. But even the judge said a dismissal might very well be what has to happen in this case. Briefly, can you tell us what the original allegations that William Little had against Kevin Spacey were? It goes back to a night three years from the very date in 2016 at a resort bar on Nantucket Island. And he was a busboy at the resort bar and he's accused Spacey of fondling him one night towards the end of work there when Kevin Spacey was visiting the island. And so without that cell phone, essentially what you have is the accuser saying one thing, that this happened, and Spacey pleading not guilty and rejecting it. And that phone was put on this pedestal as the evidence of this thing unfolding in live time. But not only shifting to a different moment of case, you had his mother, who's a former TV anchor here in Boston, admitting to deleting some pieces of material from that phone. And she had in the past called it images of of frat boy activities like drinking and and the smoking marijuana reference. Also a reference that she said comments that somebody else made to her son on Venmo that were were racist remarks. So it was all these sort of embarrassing sorts of remarks that she said she was, quote, concerned about that she admitted to deleting prior to a phone going to investigators. She said, well, this was irrelevant material. And Jackson, the Spacey's attorney, snapped back and said, it's not your call to decide what's relevant or not. Obviously, Spacey's attorney, that photos of the accuser getting drunk on his phone as an underage individual smacks against this narrative of Kevin Spacey pushing alcohol on the accuser at this night three years ago in this bar and that he may, may, Jackson's words, Spacey's attorney may not be this choir boy as he's been portrayed. So that's why this really fundamentally gets at the case of the state of Massachusetts and the the family here and why the whole thing was sort of just really took a turn. She said she was just a concerned mother, but really I don't know if her testimony, I mean, to me, just looking at it objectively, I mean, I I think it only perhaps hurt the case of the the state. There was a discussion from the judge asking whether she also wanted to invoke her Fifth Amendment rights, and she said she didn't want to. She started tearing up, crying at the very beginning, saying, I have nothing but the truth to tell. But, you know, 15 minutes later, when Jackson, Spacey's attorney, who I thought did a really masterful job, really, throughout the entire thing, when he gets her on record admitting to various deletions, I mean, I just think that's a problematic for the state of Massachusetts and these charges against Kevin Spacey. What a turn of events in this case. The accuser has has also dropped a civil lawsuit against Spacey. So we'll keep following this and see what happens. Joey Garrison, national correspondent for USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thanks. There was no collusion. There was no obstruction. There was no nothing. How many times do we have to hear it? It never ends. It just keeps going on and on. Joining us now is Darren Samuelson, senior reporter for Politico. We're all waiting for next week. Special counsel Robert Mueller will testify in two public hearings before House committees on July 17th. 
Democrats hope that Mueller will nail home some of the most damning findings from his Russia report, something that most Americans haven't really read, and a lot of people on Capitol Hill also. But they also, you know, everybody's hoping for something new, some new type of dirt on the president. But that's an important point right there. A lot of lawmakers have fessed up to not fully reading the report. And I think from your reporting, one of the best quotes on this is Representative John Shimkus. He said that I knew there'd be a time that I'd be asked about this. So I wish I had read it before you asked, but in all honesty, I haven't. I mean, these lawmakers are are going crazy on both sides of this. And really, a lot of people in both parties have not read this whole report. What do we know? I went up to uh, the Capitol right before the 4th of July recess and, and just asked as many lawmakers as I could the point blank question, have you read the Mueller report? And I was surprised at how candid many members were. And I think if you ask them that question straight up, yes or no, I got a lot of no's or I got a lot of I'm working on it or yeah, I started and I just skipped to the end in the summaries and put it down and and I'm done with it. For a lot of members, obviously, they would probably rather be talking about anything but the Mueller report, especially the Republicans. They'd rather be talking about the economy or any myriad other policy issue or parochial issue, and especially the ones who are not on the committees that are directly involved in, in the investigation. There's really no direct reason for them to be briefed and ready to roll and talk about this. But at the same time, you know, this is, you know, fundamental to American democracy. And Mueller's work, you know, just spent 20 something million dollars. And they, a lot of Republicans have complained about the cost. You would think that they would want to stop and read through the findings and see for themselves what Mueller came, you know, the conclusions he came to, because it's not a simple black or white answer here. There's some gray. That's what you get by reading the report. And I will say, you know, Democrats as well admitted to me not reading the report from the chairman of the House Agriculture Committee, Colin Peterson, who definitely against impeachment from Minnesota to Tim Kaine, the running mate from Hillary Clinton in 2016. He had a funny who, response, too. Yeah, he said, uh, I didn't read it. I lived it, which is a, it's funny. That was a, that was a quote. The reason it jumped out at me, especially is because Hope Hicks actually gave the exact same answer when she was questioned under oath by the House Judiciary Committee recently. Hope Hicks, the former Trump campaign spokeswoman who went on to work in the White House. She worked for Donald Trump in the Trump Organization, probably saw more of Donald Trump behind the scenes than anyone. And that was her response when she was asked if she read it. And Tim Kaine said the same thing. Kind of fascinating that that still, that you would expect someone would go back and and read through it themselves and and see, you know, all of the different aspects and know what's there. I am seeing from your reporting, Senator Tim Scott said, what's the point? Senator Lisa Murkowski said, it's tedious. I tried to get through some of it, but I haven't picked it up in at least two weeks. You know, she's kind of dipping in and out of her reading. I mean, I know there's fatigue on this topic with a lot of people, I mean, are they just going through the same thing? There's a lot of different answers to that question. Having read it myself, it takes 15, 16 hours. I did it over a couple of days right when it came out. So lawmakers, obviously, they do have a lot of airplane time. So they definitely have time to read it. But it does, you know, it does take some sitting, especially if you are going cover to cover. That was one answer that I got. Obviously, they're reading a lot of other material at the same time. You know, lawmakers are constantly in deluge with material. For someone like John Shimkus, his response was also, he's from a very red central Illinois district. And impeachment is just point blank, not something that his constituents are talking about or caring about. That's what he said to me. And that was his first explanation for why he hadn't read it to me was that. We should note that two hours after I interviewed John Shimkus, I did get an email from his spokeswoman saying, Congressman Shimkus is now reading the Mueller report. So, you know, (laughs) I think maybe I got to him there at least to change his answer. There's tons of attempts for more of this to get out in front of the public. Obviously, the Democrats were holding some hearings, hoping that some more details would get out. There's been readings in D.C. on this. There was celebrities getting into the act, too, with guys like John Lithgow that were doing dramatic readings of the obstruction of justice moments from the report. So everybody 
is kind of working to get a lot of this information out to the public at large. And largely because for Democrats specifically, if they want to move forward with some type of impeachment proceedings, if the public at large doesn't really know it's in the report, there might not be a willingness for them. You know, where's the public sentiment on it if they don't know what was in the report other than just kind of the top headlines? The statistic that people continue to point to and the only real serious number that I've seen polling wise was a CNN poll that said 3% of the respondents, this is, uh, I think it was in late April, early May, right after the report came out, responded to CNN to say that they had read the whole report, which if you if you just quickly translated that out, extrapolated out to the whole country, that would be 9 million Americans, which I think is a very high number and probably yeah. not accurate. That is a very high number. So yeah, I mean, you know, this report has been a bestseller. It's funny because it's a free document. You can download it off the internet. But nonetheless, the Washington Post, the New York Times, a couple others have published versions of the Mueller report, and it's been sitting on the bestseller list, on the New York Times bestseller list for like 10 weeks now. But I think that that is more a byproduct. One, people don't buy that many books anymore. But two, people who are buying it, it's a conversation piece. It's a souvenir in some respects, and that's probably why people are buying it, but it's still not something that they're really cracking open and reading from cover to cover. And the fact that the public has not really digested it or knows what's in it, or also is getting their news about what is in it from their partisan media that they consume is just it doesn't bode well for one democracy and for whether we learn any lessons from this going into 2020, whether we change any laws or policies coming out of this going into 2020. And this is why, again, the celebrities, whether it be the Kevin Klein, John Lithgow celebrity reading that was uh, on Broadway a couple of weeks ago, there's a Rob Reiner two minute video. There's several of these videos that are out there of sort of the celebrities urging Americans to read the Mueller report. I don't know how much it's going to really do beyond maybe pushing some of the people who are already urging or suggesting Trump's impeachment proceedings should begin to excite the base of the Democratic Party. That seems to be the extent of it. But the reason for next Wednesday's hearing with Robert Mueller is to try and put some life around this report, recognizing that very few Americans have read it. And even, you know, a few members of Congress have read it. Right. So let's hear from the, the man who wrote it himself. And it's really on him now, just whether he reads from the report himself or offers his own recounting, but probably within the confines of the report. Yeah. That's what we're all going to be looking to I on mean, Wednesday. Darren Samuelson, senior reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. funny all these things are supposed to maybe bring down our bills but then when you're done adding everything up that you want you may end up paying the same or who knows more joining us now is joe flint reporter for the wall street journal we have some more info now on another player in the streaming wars warner media's new streaming service is going to be called hbo max and it's set to launch next spring but one of the biggest things that we learned from all of this is that the number two streamer for netflix friends is going to be leaving netflix and going to this hbo max service what else did we learn about this warner brothers which actually is the company that produced friends for nbc all those years ago so they own it and the show is being moved over to the new hbo max streaming service uh, they're also plucking a few other shows from the warner library including pretty little liars which was a teen, very popular teen show that aired several years ago on Freeform, a Disney outlet. And they have picked up Fresh Prince of Bel-Air as well. Yeah. And a lot of these older shows, it may, seem, it may seem silly, but these older shows are very important to these streaming services because there's something for people to graze on. Obviously, you want new original shows, and those are the things that will make a splash. But like any supermarket, you need to carry your Coca-Cola and your Heinz ketchup to get people to check out the new products as well. We've talked before about this changing landscape of TV and how all these streamers 
are now really changing the entertainment industry as a whole, the way actors even approach roles that they take. And, and actors that were primarily doing movies, they're doing TV shows now on streamers because just of the freedom that they have. But Netflix's number one streamer, The Office, is going to be leaving also pretty soon to one of these rival streaming services. So this is really changing the whole landscape. As far as HBO Max, do we know how much that's going to be costing? We don't know yet. I was told that they will probably announce a price later this year, maybe October, sometime, certainly sometime in the fall. We can pretty much reasonably guess, though, that it's going to be at least $15 a month because there's HBO Now, which is HBO's current direct-to-consumer service. That costs $14.99. I don't want to bore the listeners with all the ins and outs of the business, but basically, unless HBO or Warner Media, the parent company, wants to lower that price, they can't offer a new service that has HBO on it at less than $14.99. Do we know what the fate of Warner Media's other streaming services are going to be, like HBO Now, the HBO Go thing, they have a CW and a DC Universe streaming outlet? What's going to happen at all those? The plan for now with HBO Now is that it will remain as is. And if you're a customer that subscribes to HBO Now, but you're not interested in upgrading and getting the other content, the other original shows or the library stuff, you don't have to. You can stick to your HBO Now. And the same with HBO Go, which is basically for people who have an existing cable or satellite subscription. And HBO Go is just the online version of that. So nothing changing there. And I'm told nothing in the near term with the DC site either, that that's going to stay at is. And the CW site, given that that network is kind of a partnership with CBS involved, I don't think that's going to change a heck of a lot either. There will be CW shows that in the past have gone to Netflix that will now come to this new streaming service as well. The headline is that HBO Max is paying $425 million to carry Friends for five years starting in 2020. But they're also going to get a lot of other original programming on HBO Max. Things from Nicole Kidman, Reese Witherspoon, Anna Kendrick. Tell us a little bit about some of that stuff. They announced about a dozen projects. You mentioned uh, Nicole Kidman is producing a drama for them. She may appear in it. We'll see. Reese Witherspoon has signed on to make at least two movies with them, produce them. Anna Kendrick is starring in a series for them, a romantic comedy. And uh, Greg Berlanti, who's a very prolific producer, makes Riverdale and then the show You. He is also making movies for the streaming service as well as producing a drama that will star Kaylee Coco, who, of course, most recently starred on The Big Bang Theory. Right. They're putting a lot of money in original programming, and they're going to have to because having friends is, is great and everything, and I understand why they want it, but ultimately they're going to need a lot of original stuff to bring people in. That's, that's where you ultimately will make your mark. I know we talk about how big the audience is at Netflix for Friends and The Office, and it, and it is big, but I'm not convinced that with those two shows not there that people are suddenly going to flee Netflix. I think there's still a fair amount of original content there that draws people in, and still a lot of movies and acquisitions as well. Right now, I think I subscribe to each and every one. So I have like the Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, and I'm probably going to end up getting more of these. As more of these streaming services pop up, we will see more cord cutting, especially for folks who aren't necessarily big sports fanatics, because that's what keeps a lot of people subscribing to the traditional cable and satellite services. It's funny, all these things are supposed to maybe bring down our bills, but then when you're done adding everything up that you want, you may end up paying the same or who knows, more. Joe Flint, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me.
That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.